it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll right get now, through the it. COVID-19 vaccines are are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store, at least a, a very busy one, to be sure, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with the author of a new book, uh, Awakened by Grace, um, Chronic Grief and Self-Condemnation, Healing, and Faith, and... Uh, We'll talk with uh, Darlene West about that new book. And uh, then coming up later this hour and into next hour, we're going to talk with uh, uh, neuroscientist Emily Trinnell from PETA about sepsis research in animals. And we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Kimberly Kenton from uh, Northwestern University about pelvic floor disorder, which is kind of a different topic for me. And... uh, but we, uh, we start out this morning talking about less is more with a professor from the University of uh, Virginia who has a new book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. His name is Lydie Klotz. He joins me by phone. Um, hi, Lydie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, just out of curiosity, there's there's an old um, story that I heard told about the uh, the first mayor, uh, the, not the first mayor, but the first mayor daily of Chicago, 
And someone said about him, he didn't know how to add or subtract, but he knew how to divide. Um, <laughs> what is it about us that, that makes us think in terms of more? You, you tell a story about uh, the inspiration for your book coming from uh, playing with Legos with your son, and, and there was a bridge that that was uneven and your son instinctively thought to remove a piece from the long side in instead of adding a piece to the short side and that got you thinking about this is that how this all came about yeah i'd always been interested in um kind of minimalism as a design philosophy and uh but i'd never been able to separate the act of getting there which is you know taking something away from the from the end state um of the and so when i was playing legos with my son and he was three at the time and you you described it perfectly and he basically took away to solve this problem that if he wasn't there i would have just added and moved on and um we we've since done tens of thousands of hours of research to kind of to to test this and it's amazing how closely what we found you know the thought process that people use how closely it matches what i did in that moment and so whether we're we're think whenever we're thinking about something that we want to try to change from how it is to how we want it to be whether it's a a lego bridge that's an easy one to visualize and carry around but it's not super consequential um or you know your calendar your to-do list um maybe the ideas that are in your head um, legislation. You mentioned the the mayor before. So um, <laughs> whenever we're trying to change something from how it is story. to how we want it to be, our first instinct is our default is okay. What can we add here? And it's not that we can't think of subtracting. I mean, I was perfectly capable of removing that block um, or thinking of that. But often, what happens is because our first thought is to add, we will add and move on without even considering the subtractive solution and um and that can be problematic and some of the the later experiments that we did um you know not on my son we uh, <laughs> showed that people would you know add to their detriment you know the the answer was obviously to subtract it was you know definitely the better solution for example we had a another lego paradigm where people could solve it by removing one block or by adding eight blocks and it costs money to add blocks and they still overlooked the subtractive change so that was evidence that this was something people weren't even thinking of well and that, that's that's our research contribution and it, let me real quickly i mean i just focused a lot on not thinking about it but there's also a lot of reasons why even after we do think of subtracting we don't actually do it well that's kind of wired into american dna this whole notion of manifest destiny and expansion and you know grow things bigger and i live in a city uh an industrial city that that's going through the opposite it's trying to figure out how to function as it decreases in size and we're hearing that happen in cities around the, the, the country. And so really, this, this book has, uh, um, you know, a lot more ramifications than, than just shortening our to-do list. Oh, yeah, yeah. And those, are the, those ramifications that you're talking about are the ones that I care most about and the reason that I felt obligated to write the book. But you're exactly right. And, um, you know, one of the theories behind why we might have 
developed this default to adding is because for a long time it's made sense, right? When you're expanding across the the country or when you've got a uh, when there's not a city built, the the best option is typically to to add things to it. But now that we've we've developed and we've got a lot of these things or, you know, or a city is, you know, decreasing in population, then subtracting becomes a more viable option if we can see it. So, yeah, that's uh, incredibly true. And it's not just Americans. Don't, uh, I mean, it certainly is Americans, but we found this same thing in Germans and, really? and Japanese people, at least in our early research. Yeah. And, it, you know, the same civilization example, right? Manifest destiny in the United States. Most of the, civilizations that are around now are around because they expanded and took over the the civilizations that didn't it's um is there something um that's that's wired into us as human beings to think add first yeah, that's what our research found. I mean, it's not like we did brain scans on people to find <laughs> the exact wiring. Not that that's something that you you can't do that anyway. But um, but yeah, I, this shows to be this default to adding is what's going to happen when we're left to our own devices. Um, and so, I think you know the first step is knowing about it, which you're doing a great service to your listeners and <laughs> helping them understand that and. And uh, and then we need to remind ourselves that that we can subtract. Well, we found ourselves bumping into this uh, subject um, as we talk about things like in the city of Flint, Michigan, where my show mm-hmm. is based. Um, we've right. been wrestling with this: what to do about infrastructure for a city that the the population has literally dwindled to half of what it once was. And now, you know, how do you, it's not like Legos, Heidi, <laughs> you know, you can't just take one out. Um, you know, how, right. how do you, how do you shrink roads and bridges and, and water pipes and, and all of those things so that you're accommodating the right number of people and, and, uh, for the right, um, and right-sizing the the economy. Yeah. What are the? I'm, I'm so I'm a civil engineer by training. I mean, this is the I got to this topic because I was just curious in how people were designing. But um, and I yeah, I think it's fascinating what's happening in your neck of the woods because you're exactly. It's not just Legos. It's not as simple as removing one thing. And I from you you might have to fill in the gaps here. But from my understanding, there's kind of a. a a challenge when you're right-sizing infrastructure and okay you've you've developed a certain size um you know so flint you know encompasses a certain um you know area of square miles and now how do you shrink the infrastructure like you said do you go and shrink every single road or do you like pull off the exterior roads and try to have more density which of course requires like a, a bigger central planning effort that, you know, I'm not even sure that I would be in favor of. Um, so it's, it is a challenge. Um, and, it, but it is, it's exactly the, it's a perfect example of how this, it's a, it's a new challenge. Um, and subtracting, thinking about subtracting is, has to be a way of resolving it. I don't know. What do you think, what are some of the promising ways of 
well, that, what's um, been happening yeah. in in Flint and uh, Detroit, where uh-huh. um, where there's you know just this huge infrastructure and and landmass, as you point out, um, one of the options has been urban farming. Yes, and yeah. filling in some of the some of the gaps with open space and planting and and. Uh, it's um i'm not sure if that's the answer but it's something that's you know being looked at and done and and uh developing in some parts of both communities yeah and of course the you know anything we're talking about in terms of city design there's no one size fits all answer um you know what what's right for one neighborhood might be wrong for another but yeah the urban farming is one that um in the in places like Manhattan or, you know, there's this idea of pocket parks where you take a, a, it's essentially the same as urban farming, but you take a a lot that's not being used or that's being underused and and turn it into a park. And these can be, they end up being really special places because of the development that surrounds them. I mean, the pocket park wouldn't look like anything if it was in the middle of a uh, an open landscape, but because it's in the middle of this urban jungle, it uh, it creates a really a, a really interesting place. No, um, but creating and yeah, green so space and bike paths and and those kinds of things. Bike paths and yeah, closing you know, think, rethinking how we're using our roads. I mean, that's one that comes up a lot in the book. I talk about um, actually removing the Embarcadero Freeway from the waterfront in San Francisco and. Um, but there's also versions where I, during the pandemic, for example, I know a lot of, because there was less car traffic and because people in cities needed to get outside safely, a lot of the roads became pedestrian places. And so, you know, as the capacity needs go down, what can you use these road spaces for that they, they weren't otherwise, that they, you know, they don't just have to be for cars anymore. Um. Lighty, I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned the the pandemic, and and I want to talk about uh, how maybe some people's attitudes have changed during the the pandemic. But I have a break coming up here in about a minute, so I don't want to I don't okay. want to dive into anything too That's deep. That's not long enough. No, yeah. can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, of course. Um, my guest is Lydie Klotz. He is uh, from the University of Virginia, where he is, uh, where he directs the university's Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative, and is appointed in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. His new book, Subtract: The Untapped Science of Less, um, looks at uh, how we how we think about. Uh, changing our lives we we typically think in terms of growth and and you know we find ourselves in some cases like in the in the flint area where i am trying to figure out how to be smaller anyway we're going to talk more about that after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break Uh, they are uh, wfov 92.1 lpfm flint and if you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So stay tuned. We will be back with more. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation uh, about uh, the thinking that that uh, was behind the uh, new book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, by University of Virginia professor Lydie Klotz, who joins me by phone. Lydie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, that's fine. Happy to. Um, we were talking about how it's sort of natural for people to think in terms of expansion um, rather than subtraction, and, and we talked about a couple of uh, different examples of that. Um, and, and then you mentioned uh, sort of parenthetically the, the pandemic, but how has the pandemic changed people's thinking uh, with people uh, cooped up in their homes for a year and a half? I wonder, yep. Let's try this again. I seem to have lost Lighty, and we're going to see if we've got him back. Lighty, are you back with me? All right. Thank you for calling right back like that. Anyway, the question I was going to ask has to do with the pandemic and people being cooped up for a year and a half. Um, A lot of people... um, felt a little bit closed in and and started thinking maybe adding a room onto their house or moving to you know bigger digs you know after spending that much time in the same space um has that affected people um and and reinforced that notion of uh um bigger is better yeah it's a good question um i mean first of all it's just a horrific tragedy of course uh the the thing that when i think about the pandemic and what it means for what we've been talking about in terms of how we try to change things from how they are to how we want them to be is that it's it's been a big reminder of possible changes and of course you know 80 percent for me 80 percent of the stuff that got enforced on me because of the pandemic like not being able to see grandparents and and things like that i'm bringing back as soon as possible. Um, But there are some things that the pandemic has shown me that I never would have done on my own um, that I'm like, oh, maybe I will keep that. And one of the reasons, you know, back to the, one of the things that we found in our studies about subtracting was that it wasn't impossible. If you had a reminder, if you had a cue that subtracting was a possibility, you might think of it. And so whether it's this, you know, you mentioned adding a room onto your house. I mean, that would be an additive change that you thought about because of the pandemic. But I think I've had some real subtractive changes that I've thought about because of the pandemic. I mean, it's pretty common for an academic to spend maybe 20 days a year on the road um, at at different conferences. And and the point of those is to meet other people and talk about ideas. And um, it's, it's useful, but... I found over the pandemic that I did a much better job of that with Zoom and, you know, phone calls and just was able to talk to a much wider range of my professional network. So as as I get more of my options back from the pandemic, I'm not going to do as much of that business travel. And so I think there's things like that in all of our lives that the pandemic has shown us, hey, here's something that I was forced to do differently, but I actually liked it better. It actually worked better for me. I mean... 
spending more time with kids is another one. I've got a two-year-old and a, a six-year-old, and um, that's one thing I'll never regret about the pandemic is that we got to, to spend more time with them. So rather than, you know, hey, the pandemic's definitely going to make us add, definitely going to make us subtract, I think it's more that it has shown us, it's, it's shaken us out of how we are normally living our lives, and uh, and maybe we will like some of those things, and some of those might be subtractions. There was a commercial um, years ago uh, for storage bins that showed this couple dealing with clutter. Maybe you remember the one I'm thinking of. And they're living with all this clutter. They go out and get these amazing storage bins, and now they don't have any clutter. And the first thing they think of is, time to get more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What? What are some of the things in in your research and and in your thinking on this subject that people could do to, you know, sort of minimize that? You know, we, I, I've been going through a thing. I've been collecting books for years and years and years, and I've uh, gone through I don't know maybe thirty percent in in thinned them out and and I've still got a long way to go but there are things I need to do to minimize um, but what are what are some of the common things that you came across I think I mean so a couple things here one since this is part of partly a comedy program I mean if, if your listeners should check out George Carlin has just a beautiful bit on a house as a lid for your stuff and um, <laughs> you, you should be able to google that keyword and uh, be entertained for 15 minutes by a comedy legend but um he uh and i I totally agree and i think the storage bin i was laughing because it's just my my theory is that no matter how much space you have you have like 10 percent more stuff than space (laughs) so like getting the storage bins just uh delays the problem or just kicks the can down the road but marie kondo she's one of the most famous tidiers right and uh She's um, the the life changing life changing magic of tidying up, and she has this Netflix series. And whenever I would go around talking about my research, people would say, "Well, oh yeah, this is kind of like Marie Kondo." And I had heard of Marie Kondo, but I hadn't, of course, read her work. Um, but I so as I was writing the book, I went and looked at what she was doing, and some of her advice is is pretty good scientifically. So one thing that she does that's really helpful with our clutter, but also can apply to set, subtracting more generally, is she directs us to the, the, the end decluttered destination. So to use your book example, Tom, which I, I share, um, and it's really hard to get rid of books. It is. <laughs> That's a tough the, one. They're the, they're the best thing in the world, right? And, uh, but and when you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to, when you're thinking about the individual book that you are getting rid of, that's, that's harmful and it's emotionally, not harmful, it's, it's emotionally uh, hard. And, but what you're, the reason you're getting rid of it, right, is to provide more space for your other books or to provide more attention to your other books. And what Kondo does is says, you know, she doesn't have you thinking about the things that you're taking away. She has you envision this really nice decluttered space. And this, you know, works on another psychological phenomenon, uh, like loss aversion. So basically, you know, Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winner, and Amos Tversky, who would have won the Nobel Prize if he hadn't passed away before, they find that we're more, it's more emotionally hard to lose something than it is emotionally good to, to gain something. Um, 
And so when you're thinking about the, the book that you're losing, it kind of ties into loss aversion. But if the thing that you're losing becomes the, the clean space or the bookshelf that now you can access the 70% of your books that you actually do want to read, then that becomes the thing that you don't want to lose and it becomes a little easier to subtract. So, you know, to, to sum that all up, I would say that it's, uh, how do you, um, how can you flip the, the vision around and focus less on the, the thing that you're subtracting and more on the thing that you're getting by taking away? Well, thinking in terms of um, craving space in, in more than the yeah. stuff that's in it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, and, and, and that's that's interesting. And in the book thing, you know, it started out as being a way to just like like you suggested. And as someone else who collects books, you you know this uh, situation where the bookcase is full, and then in addition you have stacks of books on the edge of the shelf in front of the books that are lined up on the shelf. And so I, I just, I got to a point where the books I had fit in the bookcases I had. Yeah. That's where, that's, that's where I started at. But what are, is ultimately getting to a point where you need or want or surround yourself with less stuff, is there any evidence that that creates less stress? Yeah, yeah, there certainly is. And I mean, I, I'm not the the expert on that. But yeah, I mean, this is stuff that you're mentally attending to. And I, I one of the stats that continues to stick with me that I came across was that the average American household has like a quarter million things in it. Um, and to the extent that you're like sitting there mentally keeping track of where those things are, um, and worried about what's, you know, how you're going to be able to use those things, that is very stress inducing. And so streamlining that can reduce the, the cognitive load that you've got in your mind from the, from worrying about those things. And that's something that you can, you know, think, use that, use that mental capacity to think about things that are more pleasant. You know, I had I had an interesting experience. I, I wish I'd learned more from it. Um, when I, I lived in uh, Los Angeles for about a year in okay. a really tiny studio apartment. In fact, studio mm-hmm. apartment actually makes it sound a little grander than it was. <laughs> and I was amazed at how little I, I needed to just live my life every day and go to work and go do things. And, you know, it, yeah. it, it well, really think about a uh, college, ahead. right? I mean, if for, for people who have been able to go to college and live in a dorm, uh, and Same how, how many people thing. consider college the most fun time of their lives. And you had that, you had the least stuff I could carry. I had a Nissan Maxima and I could fit all of my stuff in the trunk in the backseat of the Nissan Maxima. I mean, it was, and it was a, a beautiful time. So, yeah, more stuff to, certainly does not bring more happiness. And as you pointed out, it can also bring more stress. Well, we've talked about subtracting in terms of um, 
looking at infrastructure for cities that are that are shrinking um we've talked about you know our book collections um and and uh, and of course the the lego bridge example but what are some of the things that that people should be thinking about with subtraction in mind how many how many different sort of things that were you able to look at and identify as places where subtraction would be useful yeah we thought about it in terms of objects so that would be the lego bridge to the cities so physical things um situations uh so that would be like um as you're organizing your to-do list or your calendar um and that's a that's a really big one i mean i think the how times are most precious resource and how we how we use that time is really important and um we we tend to do the same thing one of the <laughs> we were when we were doing all these experiments you know showing people adding 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 we we eventually started creating somewhere like let's try to make it so that people actually take things away and so we created this itinerary for washington dc um it was a day trip to washington dc and it was uh i think it was 12 or 14 different things that people had to do and these, like big things like visit the lincoln memorial and visit you know go to the smithsonian museum there were 14 things on the itinerary and they had there's this drag and drop interface and then, then there was all the travel in between these things and we said okay how would you make this itinerary better to people and um and people still added as a way to you know make their they thought that that would make their day trip better when it was seems so clear to us that you know relieving some of the some of the busyness would have made for a more uh, enjoyable day um and that's something we all kind of fall into or at least i fall into is this idea that being busy is better and um so so subtracting from our from our time is a really powerful one and so physical objects situations and then the other one that's incredibly important is ideas um so how often do we rethink the ideas that we're, we're building in our heads? And we've got, you know, one of the ways that learning scholars think about this is mental models, right? So you've got a mental model and you get some new information and you put it on top of the information that you already have. But what about kind of questioning what we already think? And as you know, that's one of the, when we, when we're able to do that, that can be absolutely transformative for our thinking. And, but it's, it's also rare. I remember going through a, a phase where I was doing a lot of public speaking, and I, I started out writing everything out and trying very hard to read from a script, and it was horrible <laughs> until I figured out what I really needed was just just a, a, a one-page list of bullet points and just talk. And it went yeah, so much better when I did it that way. Hmm. But you kind of knew, right? I mean, that's, uh, for me anyway, with writing and uh, any kind, yeah, writing is the main one for me, but you kind of you kind of have to do the long-form version and then distill it down to the bullets. Uh, and, you know, so, the, so you know the long-form stuff, but the, the bullets are there to make sure that you don't get bogged down in the, and the too much detail. So I, I, I love the, uh, the creative examples, you know, basically editing, writing, editing yourself down to a list of bullets. Um, and that's, it's really, 
it's hard to do, but it's it's really powerful when you can do it. And there's examples of, you know, Strunken White's famous advice, right? Omit needless words. Um, and there's there's versions of that in all of these kind of creative pursuits. Well, I, I unfortunately grew up in a house full of communicators who um, <laughs> b- believed if, uh, you know, it, that saying something in three words was bad if you could come up with five or ten to say the same thing. Um, but, and I have to ask, you mentioned editing, and editing is a part of putting out any book, and I, and I can't help wondering what the editing process was like for you having someone come back to you when your subject is less is more, saying, you know, in this section here, less is more. <laughs> yeah. <Well, laughs> did that happen? Did, did those um, <laughs> conversations take place, and, and was it a little bit ironic? Yeah, those conversations have taken place a lot. And um, I I mean, I actually, I love it. I mean, as, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about how to communicate, if somebody else is willing to, to look at my stuff and think deeply about it and say, hey, your point will actually come across more strongly if you take things out. So I like to think that I do a pretty good job of welcoming that. And it, it helps to have somebody else because... Um, you know, it, we talked about how it's hard to take things away in general, but it's especially hard to take away things that you yourself have done. Um, but I will, yeah, so there's uh, 40,000 words from the book that never got to see the light of day. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure a astute reader can go through the, the final version and find other things that should be taken out. But um, it's uh, it, it certainly happened, that conversation. But that's a, an excellent uh, exercise in thinking about how you can do something with less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's something it's, uh, you can do with, you know, um, I I don't know, maybe even a shopping list. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. We, some things you things need, some things you need, and some things you want, but. If you look at the list again, what are what are some things you could do without? Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really great illustration, Tom. Of um, you know, one reason we don't subtract, like my buddy Ben, who's a co-author on this research. Uh, we're like two years into this research where we're getting people to subtract in all these ways, or trying to get them to subtract in all these ways, and he's like, "Hey, I'm taking some of our research to heart." He says, "I said no to a new." a meeting that my, that somebody wanted me to come to. And said, well, that's great, Ben, but you just didn't add, you didn't actually take something away. And so like, yeah, this, the shopping list version of that is you've got to take something off of your list that you had been getting. Um, so yeah, you like drinking cashew milk and then all of a sudden realize that you don't actually care about cashew milk and you like water better, uh, from the tap. So you take it off your list. That would be a subtraction. And I think, um, we often overlook that entire category as a possibility, which is, you know, why what you just said is revelatory and why my friend Ben couldn't, uh, couldn't think of subtracting even after he'd studied it for two years. <laughs> that's well, and, and, but that speaks to how difficult it is to change our thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. Um, and I guess, I would offer some things, you know, 
some of the things we found that help us think about subtraction. One is reminders. Um, so, you know, listening to this show is a reminder. We didn't find that the reminders are very durable and in, in that, you know, just because you're thinking about it now, then you come to some situation that Tom and I haven't talked about. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come to mind, or at least it didn't for the people in our experiments. But um, you can put these reminders in place for yourself. So, you know, if you're using the shopping list or maybe your weekly to-do list, if you sit down once a week to do that, can you cue yourself to also think about, okay, I'm going to think about stop doing um, as part of my weekly routine. And so you can put in place these reminders for yourself at the moment of making the improvement where, okay, I'm at least going to think about subtracting as an option. And, you know, that even applies to the city planning example is, you know, however that is happening. Um, did you, you know, okay, we thought about, can we convert this lot into a, uh, or we can, what can we do with this highway um, is one of the options on the table to subtract the pavement altogether um, and turn it back to a, you know, a natural space. So, and again, I don't, I don't think subtracting, I'm agnostic on adding and subtracting. I don't, I, adding is a great option very often and subtracting is not always the right option, but I do think that we need to be considering all of our, all of our options. Well, it should always be an option. Exactly. The name of the book is Subtract the Untapped Science of Less, and it's uh, written by University of Virginia professor Lydie Klotz, my guest this hour. Lydie, thanks so much for uh, sharing uh, these thoughts with me and the listeners, but also in the book. Um, the book, of course, is a great place to start, but um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and uh, and maybe more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yeah, my parents blessed me with a good Google name, so uh, my, <laughs> my <laughs> name's spelled L-E-I-D-Y, <laughs> and then the last name's K-L-O-T-Z, and I'm the only one as far as I can tell. Um, so there's, there's a website. I mean, the book really is the best place to start for, uh, for this kind of thing. And, and most libraries that I know have it, um, and it's available anywhere books are sold. There's an audio book if you like getting your information that way, but then you can see what I'm up to by, by Googling and I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm trying to do better sharing there. Uh, I'm on Twitter too. So, well, Lindy, thanks. It's been, uh, it, it's been fun talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. This was this was really fun. I uh, I uh, I really appreciate the the thoughtfulness of your questions and the um, you know the tie-in to the city planning was a really fun one for me because I think that's one of the most important aspects of this, and I'm glad that you went right to it. So I appreciate I appreciate the work you're doing. Well, thanks, Clyde, and uh, keep up the good work yourself. Okay. Have a take, good day. All right. Take care. Again, that was uh, Lydy Klotz, professor at the University of Virginia, where he directs the university's Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative and is appointed in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. And uh, his book that we were talking about today, Subtract the Untapped Science of Less. Now we're going to take a, uh, a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk with um, a neuroscientist uh, from PETA, 
Emily Trunell, and that's going to roll. That's going to go through the next segment and into the first segment of the next hour. And then we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Kimberly Kenton from Northwestern uh, University Feinberg School of Medicine. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. 
We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my... Uh, my guest this hour is a neuroscientist and research associate for PETA, um, Dr. Emily Trinnell, and uh, she joins me by phone. We're going to talk about uh, animal research a little bit um, today and, and probably more. Uh, Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Um Emily, the... Uh, I received something uh, in my email just recently about um, sepsis and animal research. What is sepsis exactly? Sepsis is a painful condition that affects more than uh, about 1.7 million American adults each year. It kills about 300,000 people in the U.S. each year. And so what it is, it's like when you have um, injury or another illness, an infection can occur, and sepsis is when the chemicals that are released to fight the infection trigger inflammation throughout the body. Um, so it, this can result, you know, from can be an unfortunate result of surgery or, um, like I said, an injury or an illness like pneumonia or a kidney kidney disease. Um, it's, it can quickly cause tissue damage and organ failure. Um, a third of the people who die in hospitals um, pre-COVID, a third of the people who die in hospitals die of sepsis. Um, and now the numbers are probably even worse because COVID can lead to sepsis as well. Is it curable? It's not curable, unfortunately, um, and this is one. Re- this is a reason that I'm interested in this topic as a scientist. Um, despite decades of research, there have been no new drugs have, that have emerged uh, to treat sepsis. So the the treatments that they're using currently are giving fluids and antibiotics and maybe even steroids, and these are the, what they what physicians have been using for decades. Um, you know, we don't have any new drugs primarily because the National Institutes of Health, which is the taxpayer-funded government agency that funds, it's charged with uh, funding new scientific discoveries that are supposed to protect human health. So they've wasted and continue to waste hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars on torturing animals. And they admitted nearly a decade ago that that sepsis in other animals is not similar to sepsis in humans. They're completely different conditions. And meanwhile, they continue to fund all these horrible experiments, and and nothing is coming from them. And and how do they go about this research? What is it that they're they're doing with animals to conduct this research? There are several different ways that experimenters induce uh, sepsis in animals, and and one of those ways, they'll uh, cut open their abdomens and uh, take out their intestines and puncture a hole in them and then sew them back up so that the bacteria 
leaks out into the abdomen and causes an infection. Um, animals suffer horrific pain. I mean, they get fever, chills, diarrhea, difficulty breathing, uh, multiple organ failure, and eventually they die. Um, another way that they do it is to actually inject toxins directly into animals um, and then trigger all that inflammation. And it, it's horrible, and, and the animals are getting you know, their version of sepsis, but it's not similar to human sepsis in the way that it's controlled and regulated in the body, which is why it's important to, to be studying this in humans instead. And, and what animals um, have been selected for this kind of research? It's primarily mice. Um, experimenters like to use mice because they're small, uh, they're docile, they're easy to breed, and they're inexpensive. Um, but also uh, mice and other rodents, but also dogs, uh, pigs, and baboons are used in sepsis experiments. And this has been going on for how long without any results? Uh, decades, at least since uh, nine, you know, at least since the seventies, um, and and likely even earlier. It, the NIH only keeps data a certain um, certain number of decades back, but physicians have spoken out, and it's been documented in the scientific literature for decades now that that we're really doing the wrong thing by focusing on mice and other animals to try to study human sepsis. Um, there, uh, it's different because our bodies use, you know, different genes to respond to the disease. Um, and, you know, it keeps going on and, and, you know, you might wonder why would they keep doing something that doesn't work? And it's, a, it's, the, it's an overall problem with the way that science is funded and conducted in this country and in other areas as well. And it's, you know, primarily based on this is what we've been doing, we don't like to change, um, and also greed. You know, when a university gets, when an experimenter at a university gets a big NIH grant, and these are you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, the university skims a whole bunch off the top. Um, and the, the scientists are made to focus more on getting those grants and getting papers published than actually being given time to you know, look at what they're doing and ask if it's really valuable to humans. So it's, it's just a, it's a backward system, and it's not contributing to, to curing sepsis in humans, which is a you know, big killer. What are the choices? Um, you know, it, that's, that's always been the way research has been done, tested in animals uh, before um, developing uh, uh, potential cures or treatments, uh, chemical responses, uh, medications, and so on. Um, what, what, how can that research be done without using animals or, quote, guinea pigs? Yeah. Uh, well, there are a lot of, there are many human-relevant uh, non-animal methods of studying sepsis. Um, so these use human biology as the gold standard, for, and these have far more promise to help humans. So these would be things like um, animal-free research, including in vitro experiments, those are cells, you know, using human cells. Um, these can be cells that have just been donated non-invasively from patients. You can take a, you know, a 
sample of skin cells um, and really learn about, um, use those cells to study how sepsis might affect that actual patient that they were taking, taken from. Um, you can use, we have really sophisticated um, human organ and human organ systems um, that are just in these small like devices about the size of a thumb drive, um, and they're made to mimic the human body. Um, and so treatments can be tested in those. Um, physicians have really spoken out about making better use of human genome data, um, mathematical computer mo modeling of human biology. Um, those, they think, will really benefit research in the sepsis field because it not only, you know, it's very different between species, but it can be slightly different even from one person to the next, the way sepsis affects the body. So really getting into a more personalized medicine and patient-specific approach is what physicians are saying is needed. Um, you know, there's also the use of donated human tissue or you know, retrospective analysis of patient data that already exists to try to determine how to better treat sepsis depending on, you know, different uh, biomarkers and things from those patients. More with PETA neuroscientist Emily Trinnell straight ahead. for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side but When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side Program.com 
the time of summer program.com You pilots get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>